Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. How to execute your vision. Welcome everyone to Someone Gets Me and I have an amazing guest with us who has managed to have a vision and go after it with fervor and attain it and is still moving forward with amazing things. Tom Dreesen is with us today. He's coming to us from California and of course I'm in Florida. And Tom has a long-standing career that started with that inner urge of, I'm going to do something with my life, and I'm going to follow that inner vision, and he did it. And Frank, or Tom has like an amazing story that will inspire you beyond measure. So get your coffee or your tea, hang out with us for a little while, and let yourself listen to his words in a way that touch your heart and have meaning for you. Because when we listen this way, we will always come out ahead. Tom is a known actor and comedian. He opened for Frank Sinatra for many, many years. He's been on tons of TV shows and movies. You can read all about those in his bio in the show notes. But what I know about him is that he is able to focus and attain what it is that he is desiring. So I'd love to welcome you to the show, Tom. Well, thank you, Diane. That's a very nice introduction. I appreciate that. <clears throat> and hello, well, everybody out there. Yeah, well, it's like kind of funny because I read bios and I'm like, well, first of all, I don't, I don't want to read somebody's life about them. And, and you have such a fascinating life that a lot of the things that, that I read are the results of that inner part of you that took a stand to follow your vision. And I think that if we talk about that a little bit, all of the results will seem logical. Like, of course, he has these great results and all of these fun experiences. So you left the Midwest, what, 40 years ago or something, right? And headed out. So tell us what that process was. What happened that you just up and moved? Well, let me, let me start with the beginning. First of all, I grew up in a suburb on the south side of Chicago called Harvey, Illinois. Uh, it's, it was steel mills and factories and they made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts and, and, uh, and they had 36 taverns in the town uh, and eight in my neighborhood. I had, I, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Uh, we had no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. It was a rat infested, roach infested shack. If, you, if a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. If you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it. And as a little boy, both my parents were alcoholic at one time and as a little boy, I would uh, take my shoe shine box every night and go shining shoes in all the bars in the neighborhood to help feed my brothers and sisters, you know. None of this do I regret, by the way. You know, I later set pins in bowling alleys, caddied in the summertime, <clears throat> had a newspaper route, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. At age 16, embarrassed by the way I was dressed and, and going to high school, that I quit high school my uh, sophomore year at age 16 mm. and worked in the streets and ran with a tough crowd and uh, at age 17 went in the Navy. When I went in the Navy, I began to, I went out to sea and everything and a lot, and I began to read. And uh, I, I, I wanted to read books that would improve my mind, you know. And, you know, when you're a young boy like that, you know, 
you're reading, you know, out at sea, a lot of young guys are reading sex novels and stuff like that. But I kept thinking, I need to, I, I had to improve my mind. So I started reading Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, A Guide to Confident Living, uh, Maxwell Maltz, Psycho-Cybernetics, uh, all these books. Uh, and the book that, you know, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. And, but the book that really uh, helped me more than anything, I think, was The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. Yes. And whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. And that fascinated me. And how you could accomplish that. Oh, my God, I should shut this off. I didn't hear. Let me pull this one down. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I thought that I had all, all of them shut off, and evidently I didn't. But that's okay. Anyhow. That's what we, that's what we have editors for. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. But you know, but the, the thought that the, whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve was written thousands of years ago. It's almost biblical in nature. But Joseph Murphy explained that how you program the end result you want, you, whatever you see and whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. Like just before you go to sleep at night, when you first wake up in the morning. Your subconscious mind, your conscious mind is most at rest, and your subconscious mind is then open to suggestion. Mm -hmm. So, and by the way, it works like this. If you say, you know, what was her name? What was her name? Doggone it. What was her name? What was her name? Two days later, you say, give me a cup of coffee. Diane, you know, where'd that come from? Once you send a picture back to your subconscious mind with an image, an image and an emotion, I mean. What was your name? What was your name? That you got the picture and emotion. The subconscious mind doesn't rest till it finds a solution. Right. It doesn't rest till it finds that solution. So that's what you call fighting a flight plan. Mm -hmm. I tell everybody, you know, and I, I now give motivation talks on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. But uh, I, I tell everybody that there's the pilot who uh, most people wander aimlessly in life because they don't know specifically what they want in life. So they wander aimlessly. So I said, there's the pilot who flies the uh, 747 from LA to Boston, does he drive 100 miles an hour to the airport, drive out on a tarmac, run aboard the aircraft, take off down the runway and say, now, where am I going? No, he files a flight plan or she files a flight plan. And that's what this vehicle we have, this body we have, right. it needs a flight plan. What is your plan for it? You know, now, I, I tell you this, that's all well and good when you know specifically what it is you want. You know, but say you don't know, say you're unhappy with your, current life and saying, as I was, when I came out of the service, you know, I was, and then I ended up getting married, having children. I'm hanging out in the bars late at night with a lot of the guys and stuff. And I'd be at one o'clock in the morning in a bar and I'd look around and I'd say, I don't belong here, but I don't know where I belong. And I, I, I literally would pray, say, God, this can't be it. What is it I'm supposed to be doing? You know? So, you know, uh, what, what, all of a sudden, um, I ended up getting into a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And, uh, and, but again, all this while I'm praying, saying, God, show me what it is I'm supposed to be doing. You know? uh, and now I'm in the Junior Chamber of Commerce. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept I had. So, um, and, and it was making the kids laugh, playing music and everything, and, and then uh, you know, uh, showing them the ills of drug abuse in our community. At that time, they weren't teaching drug education at a college level or high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. While doing, while I was proposing this to the JCs one night, a new guy, a young black guy, joined the chapter. He graduated from Norfolk State College. E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago and as a marketing rep. And he came up to me and he says, I would like to work with you on that project. Now, I said, I'm sorry, I've already got a guy. 
you know, a, a, a white friend of mine, John DeBoer. The next day, my friend John DeBoer called and said, I can't do it. I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. Tim and I, I called him up. We started working on the project. We went into the classrooms. The program became very popular in JC chapters throughout the United States and in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries through their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. But the whole thing was we got the kids laughing and playing music. One day, a little girl walking out of the classroom said to Tim and I, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And I never, ever thought about ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind and Tim's. But the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us. There had never been one in America, right? right. <clears throat> so we started writing what we thought was material. And we went into a club. And that first night on stage, a Friday night, mm -hmm. uh, something I had written got a laugh. And it was almost like an epiphany, like the dark clouds open up like a bee movie. And my whole being went, oh, yes, yes. this is what I want to do. I want to make a living as a stand-up comedian. I, I, I felt it that moment. I knew that this is what I want to do. The thought that you can make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me, overwhelmed yeah. me. I couldn't sleep that whole night. It was a Friday night. I got up Saturday morning. I went down to the church that I had been an altar boy in, that my mom I sang in a choir, or I sang in a choir when I was a little boy. And there was no service. It was empty church. And I got on my knees and I prayed. I said, God, now I know. I know what you want me to do. I felt it in my whole being. I want to make my living as a comedian. And I start making promises. I'll do charity work and I'll do that, this, that, and the other, you know. And, but for 50 years, I've been making my living as a stand-up comedian. But I've used that visualization technique on so many different times in my life, you know, that, that it shows how it really works. Mm -hmm. If I'd like to, I'd like to digress for a moment. When I was eight years old selling newspapers on the corner, one day there was a, uh, all the horns were blowing, all the elders in the community were coming out in the streets and horns are blowing. And I said, what's going on? I asked one of the elders. He said, it's Lou Bedreau Day, Tom. I said, Lou Bedreau. They said, Tom, he's a famous baseball player from Harvey, Illinois here. He played shortstop for the Cleveland Indians. They won the pennant and the World Series, and he managed them at age 24. <clears throat> and he managed them, and, and now he's a, a hometown hero. And I thought, wow, they had parades, and people were cheering him. And <clears throat> like little boys do on my way home that day, I said, wow, somebody from Harvey, Illinois is famous. Wow, and, and like a little boys do, I'm eight years old, I'm thinking, one day maybe they'll have a parade for me. You know, like they had one for Lou Boudreau. And I'm, I'm fantasizing, you know, driving down the street and waving everybody in the car. August 22nd, 1992, I went back to Harvey, Illinois. And on that corner, that corner that I sold newspapers, they named that street Dreesen Street, a big parade for me. And the guy who introduced me to the crowd was Lou Boudreau. Wow. So I'm saying to you, whatever the mind can see and believe will achieve, you know, the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it, you know. And, and by the way, when a comedy team stood up and I ended up on the West Coast, my wife and kids back in Chicago, I couldn't get on at the comedy store. But I, I was going every night begging to work for free at the comedy store because I wanted to get on The Tonight Show. In those days, one appearance on Johnny Carson and your whole life changed. So every night when I was sleeping in this old car, hitchhiking to the comedy store, and I would envision Johnny Carson saying, talking to me, saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. I would see it, I'd feel it, and I'd believe it. Now, at that time, I couldn't even get on at the comedy store, let alone be audition for The Tonight Show. But knowing in those days, if I was sitting down talking to Johnny, I'd already succeeded doing stand-up comedy, because in those days, you had to do three or four shots before Johnny would call you to sit with him. One appearance on The Tonight Show, and to America, you had arrived. But to my industry, you hadn't arrived, so you sat down and talked to Johnny. 
So I saw that imbecile. I saw Johnny saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Vision. You're a funny guy. Now I can hold up a picture. I have a picture of Johnny saying that to me, you know, uh, pointing his finger at me saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Vision. You know, and, and that I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. You know, so again, I've used this technique my whole life. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. Now, here's the last thing I'll say about this. Some people would say, oh, that's great, Tom. You knew you wanted to be a comedian, so it was easy to focus on what it is you wanted. But what about me? I'm not sure what it is I want, but I want to be a success. I want to be happy. I want to, I, then every night before you go to sleep and you first wake up in the morning, envision maybe your mother, your brother, your next door neighbor, somebody dear to you saying, my God, Diane, you're so happy now. You are so successful. Congratulations. And how you're going to feel at that moment. You know, so whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve, you know, and it will lead you into that direction. It, your, your, your vehicle needs a flight plan. I talk too much. Okay. No, you don't talk too much. And actually, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm going, yes, we do need a flight plan. Yeah, that's true. And you didn't know what you wanted to be at first until somebody suggested it and you were open and receptive to the comments and you paid attention to the feedback. You paid attention to how you felt. You paid attention to all of those things while continuing to do it and paying attention to your mind. It's like all of it worked together perfectly. And it, what's funny is when you're talking about The Tonight Show, when I used to, years ago, when, when The Tonight Show was going on, I love Johnny Carson, and I worked noon to midnight in a psychiatric hospital doing psychiatric triage. Mm -hmm. And I would come home and The Tonight Show was what, helped me laugh so I could sleep peacefully after whatever chaos ensued all the time. And it was a lifesaver for me in so many ways, comedy and humor and being able to go into a different kind of experience, you know, an emotion after being with psychotic people and having people shoot at you and all kinds of things all day. So being able to follow that vision pays off. So I have a question for you. Has there ever been a time when it seemed like what you knew was working or would work wasn't working. Like there was a stall or, or it took you down the wrong road. Or has it ever been like a time where there's like a rock in the road or a boulder that didn't seem like it should be there? Well, many, 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 you know, and, 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 and when the comedy team, when I started with Tim Reed, I thought we were going to be the most successful comedy team in, in America. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. And when that fell on the wayside after six years, Tim didn't want to be a part of a comedy team anymore. It was like I had never been on stage alone. It was like all my dream was shattered, you know. And, and I sat, I, I was sitting in a bar one night after the team split up and my ex-wife wanted me to, um, at that time, she wanted me to quit show business and get a job in the factory like her dad had and bring a check home every Friday. Now I'm sitting in this bar late at night. A friend of mine was attending bar there. And I'm thinking, I had a couple of beers in front of me and I'm thinking, what is it? I, I, what can I do? I was thinking, what alternative? I could either find another black guy and, and we could be, do, do the same act Tim and I did, or I could get a job in a factory that would please my wife, or I could go it alone and be a stand-up comedian and, 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 and I could try to get on The Tonight Show. And I decided at that moment, that's what I want to do. I want to try to be on my own. I think I can do this. I believe it with my heart that I can do this. And I remember a book I read by uh, Clement Stone, W. Clement Stone, Positive Mental Attitude. He said, if you know what you want in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get it out of your life. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian? And I thought, alcohol. My parents were alcoholics. 
you know, I like drinking beer with the guys and all that. I said, alcohol, because you've got to have a sharp mind to be a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. I just took the two beers and I said, I quit. And my buddy, it was like one o'clock in the morning, my buddy came up and he said, uh, I pushed the beers up in front. He said, through for the night, Tommy? I said, I quit. He said, for tonight? I said, no, I quit. And, and, I, mm -hmm. and I never touched another drop since. And I, be, you know, I became a success. You know, uh, you know the, the, uh, it, it, it's part of, of you know, having this passion. You've you got to have a passion for success, you know, if you want to be a success. You know, first of all, let me, let me go to this part. Pythagoras said, life is like the Olympic Games. There are those who choose to get in the arena and go for the goal. There are others who choose to sit in the arena and watch those go for the goal. And then there are those who choose to sell trinkets to those who are watching those go for the goal. And you're one of those three. <laughs> so I wanted to be in the arena. I wanted to go for the goal. My ex-wife was perfectly happy to sit in the arena and watch you go for the goal. And she didn't want to sell any of those darn trinkets either. You know? <laughs> right. So be no trinkets. <laughs> so my point is you, you have to search your own being and what it is. You, right. There is no right or wrong. You know, it, it's what, what do you, what do you want? You know, um, I think it was, uh, I forgot who said, it. he said, success is living the life you want. Yes. Just living the life you want. You know, I love making people laugh. You know, at the end of my book, there's a poem. I'm not going to do it for you, but uh, it, it's it's called the sound of laughter. And the first lines are as far back as I can remember, or shortly after thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And so it, it turns me on to make people laugh. You know, right. and so I was fortunate that I found that dream. That's look. That's what I believe God wanted me to do. That I was put on this right. planet for to make people laugh. And let, let me go to this real quick. How important is laughter? You just described what Johnny Carson used to say all the time. He said, people go through trials and tribulations all day long. When they finally get to bed at night and get in bed, they turn me on. They want to laugh before they go to sleep. Right. So he yes. used to tell us, don't come on there with serious stories. When you come and talk to me, let's tell some funny, enlightening stories. Now, here's why it's so important. Norman Cousins a man who wrote a book called Laughter Math, and he wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. Mm -hmm. Norman Cousins uh, was the editor of Saturday Review, and many years ago, he was told he had a terminal illness and he was going to die. The doctors told him in the hospital he had a heart condition through years of stress and that he didn't have long to live. He laid in the hospital and he thought, if negative input stress made me ill, then positive input would make me well. So he checked out of the hospital and he'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He wouldn't watch the evening news. He would listen to comedy albums. He would only watch comedians. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Because of Norman Cousins, UCLA did some research. They've always known that laughter is a psychological deterrent, that the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking of your problems. Or if you're laughing at some sitcom, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. However, UCLA found out that after you have a hearty laugh, that the human brain, when you laugh and you finish this big, great laugh and you go, Oh, and a sense of well-being comes over you, tears running down your eyes, because your body has gone through an actual chemical change. Endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. Right. So comedians are physicians of the soul. Yes. You can call me Dr. Dreeshen if you'd like, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's true. La laughter is, is that. And, the, and people who bring laughter to others in all the different forms, I think are physicians in a, in a very spiritual kind of 
just energy way, you know, of the soul, of the spirit, of the emotions. It elevates everything, you know, I think. So I, I totally get it. And I, and I think about it a lot because I love to laugh a lot. I'm always talking about having fun and playing and making whatever we're trying to do playful and fun and joyous instead of heavy and, and just really arduous. So if we're not having fun, what's the point? Well, here's what I say to him a lot of, when I do motivation talks, you know, uh -huh. I, I say to him, I'm going to give you a prescription, laugh out loud 10 times a day. Yes. Now, when I studied acting in Chicago and in LA, there were times I had to cry on cue mm -hmm. and sometimes you had to laugh in the scene. But I said, I said, you're home alone. Go look in the mirror and just start going, ha, 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 ha. Just laugh out loud. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I know you'll think at first, maybe your neighbors will think you're a little bit nuts, but laugh out loud 10 times a day. Find something to laugh at. 10 times a day. And if you can't find anything, this just laugh out loud. Just, I say, get up out of bed in the morning, go look in the mirror. That should ought to set you laughing right there. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, I used to have a sign in my house that said laugh out loud that was at the end of my hallway. It <laughs> yeah. goes yeah, up above true. the door, like laugh out loud. Just keep laughing and it will keep everything stabilized. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great idea. A great idea. Have a sign saying laugh out loud because it, it, it's healthy for you. Yes. It is. And at the time, I was the clinical director of a very large substance abuse treatment center. It could get really heavy all day and very intense. And so my goal was by the time I got home, I was laughing. And when I was home, I made sure that I did. So I had this sign as my little mantra. It was great. <laughs> it works. Yeah. It's very fun. So when you had to learn how to cry on cue and laugh on cue and all the acting things, was that just a natural flow for you that came out of your comedy or was that, or was that something that you really had to put a lot of effort into learning? Like the comedy, it seems like in the laughing kind of is your natural soul's calling. So it just kind of flows through you in this really cool way that you've honed obviously. But what about the acting part? Was that, is that a natural outpicturing or did you kind of have to stretch for that? Well, you know, there's, there's the, if, if you dissect, it sometimes gets a little bit boring, but there's the Boleslawski and Stanislawski method of acting. That's, that's a method and technique. Uh -huh. You know, I'll give you a great example of the difference between method and technique. You know, um, there was a Russian actor that uh, was on Broadway for like nine months and uh, he was being interviewed and a guy said to him, the guy was interviewing him said, you know, uh, Boris, every night there's a moment in the play where you hold your brother's head in your arms because your brother's dying and a tear comes out of one eye like clockwork and on the other eye, every night, like clockwork. How do you do that? He said, when I was a little boy, I have a dog named Buki, and I love dog, and, and Buki got hit by a truck and, and, so, and died, and I love that dog. So every night I hold my brother's head in my arms in the play, I think of my Buki and I cry. He said, if that doesn't work, I pull a hair out of my nose. <laughs> whatever works, you know. It's right. Whatever, whatever, it's method or technique, you know. <laughs> Yes, I, I think that uh, uh, some people are, are real good at, at command, at crying on cue, and other people need don't need things to put uh, like little drops in their eyes and, and their switch camera and the scene and everything, you know. But uh, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting profession, you know. I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian first, last, and always. But I've acted in film and acted in sitcoms and and murder she wrote and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's it's real interesting to see good actors. I've worked with some, with Angela Lansbury, you know, and, and, I, and I, I, when you see real good actors in you in a scene, you know it right now. Frank Sinatra, by the way, was a brilliant actor. Everybody knows that Frank Sinatra is this pop singer, this great pop singer. 
and he is the greatest pop singer of all time. What they forget is he won the Academy Award in From Here to Eternity. He also should have won the Academy Award in A Man with a Golden Arm and, and, and a movie called The Manchurian Candidate. He was a brilliant actor. Uh, and, and one night I was sitting around with him uh, with all of his acting friends, Gregory Peck and Kirk Douglas and Clint Eastwood and, and uh, Robert Wagner and, and um, Jack Lemmon. And they were talking acting. And I was fascinated listening to them talking about directing and acting. And they were showing such great reverence to Frank. And I said to uh, Frank, I was just curious, I said, Frank, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm hard. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. You know, that's why when you gave Frank Sinatra a song to him, it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Frank would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him. And he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. Yeah. You felt every bit of that. And then the joy of songs, too. You know, come fly with me. Yeah, he, was, he was a brilliant artist. Yes, he was a brilliant artist. He was very common in, in our household. My mother was a pianist and had great respect for him. And, and I loved his music and I loved his acting all the time. And I'm like, you know, it just came out of him like from his heart and soul. And Kenny Loggins has been on this same show, Someone Gets Me, and we've talked about working from our heart. And, and one of his comments that I thought fits you and fits Frank is, that the heart and the soul lead and then the mind comes, comes along later and, and orchestrates how to make it all happen. And, and that's what you're talking about is like just letting that part of us lead and then the brain will figure out the rest. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, again, the oldest cliche in the world is follow your heart, you know. <laughs> follow your heart, you know. <clears throat> um, you know I, I, I was lucky. I found, I, but I have to tell you, I prayed and I, and I believe in a higher power. I prayed. I said, show me, show me. I, I, this can't be what I, you, you want me to do. You know, I, you know, there's a guy wrote a book years ago called, um, Oh God, I wish I could remember it. But he said the most interesting thing is God is saying, this guy is saying, God, what is it you want me to do? And God said, what do you want to do, Tom? No, you don't understand God. What is it you want me to do? No, you don't understand. Tom. I want what you want. What? Tell me what you want. Right. That's what I want. <laughs> I went through that years ago. I'm like, I will do whatever you want me to do, God. And then I kept hearing back, well, what do you want to do? Well, I'll do whatever you want to do. <laughs> it was that dialogue. And it was like, wait a second. God wants us to be happy <laughs> and do what we want to do. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, 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 and by the way, and, and the oldest cliche in the world is that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, right. there's, a, there's a great um, funny joke about that where a guy uh, is saying, oh, Lord, Lord, please let me win the lottery. If I could only win the lottery this week, all my dreams would come true. And then he doesn't win the next week. He said, Lord, please, if I could only win the lottery. And next week, and finally saying, Lord, please, if I could just win the lottery. And the Lord, the Lord says, Al, meet me halfway, buy a ticket. <laughs> right, do something. <laughs> Can't win if you don't buy a ticket, you know. That's exactly uh, it. <laughs> it's so true, though. It's like, I think that's one thing I love about comedy is that it's truth and coming out in a cool way. Yeah, I think the stand-up comedian is like the fable of the emperor and, and with no clothes. You remember the fable that, mm -hmm. that, that, that the emperor, uh, that, that the tailors kept telling what only fools could not see these beautiful designs. And you know, the king didn't want to admit he was a fool. So they kept saying, doesn't it look good or look splendid? Pretty soon he's going to go th through the village and show everybody his splendid clothing. And now that all the, they're lying the streets and they're going, oh, it's beautiful. Don't you think it's beautiful? But he hasn't got any clothes on. And finally, a little boy at the end of it all says, he doesn't have any clothes on. And somebody said, did you hear what that little boy said? 
And the boy said, he doesn't have any clothes on. And finally, the guy said, you know something? I'm with the kid. I don't see any clothes either. <laughs> That's who the stand-up comedian is. The right. stand-up comedian exposes the truth to yes. comedy. Yep, exactly. And I th- think that's why it's so necessary for our soul and our health as, as humans, you know, especially in all these kind of crazy times that are going on in the world. Humor is really needed now, you know, with everything happening. Mm-hmm. So have you ever had to overcome being um, perfectionistic? Well, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I'm a perfectionist at all. Uh, in fact, Good. I think like most people, I have a, I have a tendency that I want to be lazy. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just sometimes I don't, I don't want to work that hard. But, but uh, you know, but I had to. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a question of, you know, in the days that I started out in stand-up comedy, you, you, you know, there was a path in those days to success, and that was the Johnny Carson show. And that, and that was one appearance on The Tonight Show. Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. I was in the unemployment line. And the next day, my first appearance on The Tonight Show, CBS signed me to a development deal. And I never looked back. I've never stopped working since that day. But, but there's times I, I want to – I have a tendency. I just want to go play golf. I don't want to work as hard anymore. You know, but, <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if your work is your love, and, my, and mine is, Right. Then, then it isn't really work, is it? You know, when you, yeah. when you love your job, you love your work, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I, I was never really a perfectionist. I was a hard worker, but not a perfectionist. Good. Well, that, I think that not being a perfectionist gives us a lot more freedom. We don't have to fight through so much rigidity and everything. So I, what do you do for fun? Well, you know, I'm obviously, to, to believe it or not, stand-up comedy is so much fun for me. I can hardly wait to get on stage, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and make people laugh. I, I know comedians that get nervous before they go on. They throw up. They, you know, Milton Berle, one of the great comedians, he would, he would think he was going to die before he went on stage. You know, I couldn't do that two times a night, seven days a week. You know, I love, I can hardly wait to get out there. So that, that's, that's what, for me, mm-hmm. for fun, is making people laugh. And I like to play golf. I'm a golfer. I was a caddy as a boy. And so I like to play golf with my buddies, and, and that's fun, you know. Uh, I, I love being with my children and my grandchildren now, you know. Um, of course, this COVID thing, we, I can't hug them. I can't, you know. But any, anything that, that um, you know, I'm, I'm not a real complicated guy. You know, I, I think I'm a pretty easygoing guy and pretty simple, you know. It doesn't take a lot to make me feel good, you know. I think that's really important, though. So I have another question that I just I have all these random questions in my mind that I keep popping in. And I know that you've traveled a lot and you've been in all these cool experiences. Is there any kind of um, food you've ever eaten that was so memorable you still think about it, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, like something that like you're like, I cannot believe I am eating this? When I was a little boy, the shack we lived in, we rarely had meals. And, and I grew up with very poor nutrition and everything. I remember when I was a little boy, I'd take my shoeshine box downtown Chicago. I'd take the IC and, and go downtown Chicago and go by the Chicago Theater and, and, uh, and try to shine some shoes there because they tip better down there. But there was a steak place called the Blackhawk Restaurant, and I never ate a steak in my life. And the smells of that steak, I just couldn't believe how delicious that smell. But we, we, I couldn't afford anything like that. And my family never – the greatest delicacy would have been chicken maybe, but, you know, but – Years later, when I was in the Navy, uh, 
a buddy of mine wanted to, let's go get a steak. He was from Denver. And I didn't know even how to order. I didn't know. He said, what kind of steak do you like? And I said, I don't know. Well, I mean, what kind do you like? I said, I don't know. I said, you don't know what kind of steak you like? I said, I've never eaten a steak. He didn't believe that. I had never, you know. So there, there, there was something in that the first time I got that steak, that filet. Mm. I mean, I just, uh, he said, how do you like it cooked? I said, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't know anything at all about those kind of things, you know. So, right. uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's uh, th that always, once in a while, I'll still have a steak, you know, uh, but not often because I try to eat healthy, you know, but. Right. Once in a while, and then still, it's wow. This is so. If it if it's in a great restaurant and it's done well, you know, like in Chicago, there's a place called Gibson Steakhouse that I, when I go to Chicago, I definitely go there and have my have a steak one night. You know. Oh yes, there's, and that's interesting because it's like that taste, that smell, the whole experience of having a steak for the first time after having smelled it all of those years. Yeah. That was like. I could feel that as you were saying it. I was like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I would stand outside that restaurant, the Black Hawk restaurant, and just smell wow, it. Wow, wow. And just, you know, because they had the, the barbecue there, and you could see how they were making it there uh, and the, on the grill. And it just was, and I always thought, boy, rich people are so lucky. Rich people that, you know. And then one day I was eating the steak, you know. Right. All your dreams come, all my dreams have come true, you know. Uh, I, 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 uh, I thank God every day, all my dreams have come true. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I told you that, uh, I went to that church, um, uh, and I prayed, you know, mm -hmm. there's no service. And I said, God, no, I know what I want. I want to be a stand-up comedian. Right. That was September 1969. When I said that, when I went in that empty church and prayed September, 2019, 50 years later, last year, I went back to that church and I gave a sermon in that church on the power of prayer. And I told the audience that I stood, I knelt down right over there 50 years ago and ask God to let me make my living as a stand-up comedian. So prayers are answered, you know, and, and, and the power of prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, I said to the congregation, look, how many of you out there have ever thought, how many of you thought about a person and, and you haven't seen that person in six years and the phone rings and it's that person? Right. And, and we've said, well, I've done that, I've done it. How many times have you thought about somebody and you haven't seen them in years, you walk around a corner and you run right into them? Mm -hmm. Those thoughts can be transferred. If thoughts can be transferred between us, basic human beings, how powerful is a supreme being transfer of thought? So that's why I believe in prayer. I really yes. do believe in prayer. You know. Oh, I totally believe in prayer. I think that when oh, I've, I work with some people, I work with a lot of visionaries who try to circumvent and not do anything that's prayer related, and they're continuously frustrated that they're not quite putting it together. I'm like, well, you're leaving out the central connection to helping us get where it is we want to go. So I told well, you know, to me, when I was sleeping in the abandoned car, hitchhiking to the comedy store every night, you know, I was getting rejected all up and down Sunset Boulevard. And one night I went back to the car and, and I mean, I, I literally felt like there was a boulder on my chest and, 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 I, and I, I, w I was saying, God, you know what I want in life. You know, help me. I can't get anybody to manage me in the business after the comedy team split up. I can't get anybody to manage me. I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to believe that you're now managing my career. You know, I'm going to turn it over. I'm turning it over to a higher power. And, and I, I said, now, when I go to sleep tonight, I'm going to wake up in the morning knowing you are now managing my career and guiding me. And I fell asleep that night. I felt like somebody took that boulder off my chest. It's being able to turn it over to a higher power. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, we just can't handle it all alone. 
you know, and, and you have to have, to have that, that faith, you know. And faith can move mountains, as they say, you know, and, and it can move mountains. And, it, and I'm a living example of that. Yes. And you have to be willing to take the action and you have to be willing to follow directions because turning it over has to happen. And then you had to be willing to follow the guidance to get yeah. there. You had to Absolutely. be willing to say yes and put yourself in position and show up, you know, and do the things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So was there or is there some highlight of your career that when you look at it, you go, yes, that was, that's the, the thing that shines brightest because you've done so many amazing things. And I just wonder if when you look back on all of these really awesome experiences, if there's something that stands out even more brightly than the others. Well, you know, there's a song called One Moment in Time with this girl singing her guts out. You know, Whitney Houston sang it, but there's yeah. another girl that sings it out too that if I could just have that one moment in time, you know, and, and I've had so many of those one moments in time. I was on my rear end. I grew up poor, ragged, all these things. But I had that moment in time where I was on stage with Frank Sinatra, the great Frank Sinatra. I'm shining shoes and bars as a little boy, and he's on the jukebox. And now, you know, now I was touring all over the world. Flying. And, you know, I was, when I came out of the service, I'm a, I was a bartender, and he's singing in a jukebox, come fly with me, let's fly away. And now I'm flying with him in his private jet, you know, flying back into my hometown, Chicago, on his private jet to open at the Chicago Theater, where I used to have my shine box trying to get people to shine their shoes around the Chicago Theater. And now my name was on the marquee with Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. that, that was a moment in time. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the first appearance on The Tonight Show that I got bumped three times. And I came back the fourth time and I scored that night. And, 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 and my whole life changed. You know, I went through the curtain and Johnny Carson called me back out for another bow. Take another bow, Tom. And I came back out and, and Johnny gave me the little circle. That was another moment in time. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was a pallbearer at Frank Sinatra's funeral, and I spoke at his funeral. And I had to make the church laugh. I knew Frank would want me to do that. And I told a funny story about Frank that people were in tears before, and, and it burst into laughter. And that was a moment in time, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but again, gracing the same stage with Sammy Davis Jr. for years, then touring with Dean Martin and, and, and touring with Frank for 14 years. I had so many great moments in time, you know, um, that I... That I uh, I mean, I, I mean, I'm so grateful for, you know, that I had that opportunity to have that feeling, that feeling that, yes, I did it. I did it, you know. Yep. But I'll tell you something interesting about a comedian. You know, I, I, I went back to Mr. Kelly's after the comedy team stood up years later, and I'm, I'm performing at Mr. Kelly's where Tim Reed and I had performed at. Mm -hmm. And all the media was in there in those days. All the press was in there on opening night. And I'm fearing in my dressing room, they're going to think Tom without Tim may not be that funny. The critics are there. But I went out that night and I scored. And when I scored, I was in my dressing room afterward. Everybody was coming up and saying, great show. The critics really like you. Now. And they all left. And I'm sitting in there and I said, man, I did it. I did it. I finally did it. I did it. And I heard, five minutes, Mr. Dreesen. I went, I got to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over. It's not over. You, you, you just proved to that audience. Now you got to prove to this audience. So. You know, um, Dick Sean once said, people live from day to day. Singers live from song to song. Comedians live from joke to joke. Your option is up at the end of every joke, you know. <laughs> oh, that's so true. That's great. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing today in this interesting 
COVID turbulent kind of world. Um, what are you doing today? Well, you know, I have the book out, still standing, <clears throat> My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Mm -hmm. My book is, I'm doing Zoom interviews every day, Skypes and Zooms and podcasts and radio phoners. And the book is doing incredible. It's, it's getting great reviews and on Amazon.com. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a cheap plug here, forgive me, but you go to Amazon.com. But th that's keeping me real busy because I, all the years I toured with Frank and Sammy and Dean and everybody, and toured with Smokey Robinson and Natalie Cole and Gladys Knight and the Pips and different artists. I would, if something happened, I would journal it. Something poignant happened. I would I'd go back to the room that night and just journal it, you know, or something uh, happy happened, something serious or something poignant. I would journal. And so I began, I knew one day I wanted to write a book. And so that's what's kept me busy the last year. But being in, in lock, lockdown here, like in California because of the COVID thing, uh, I, I practice what I preach about um, self-talk. You know, I told you I give motivation talks on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. So I have self-talk to myself a lot. You know, when I'm home alone, you know, I, I, I might say day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. You know, day by day in every way I'm getting better, better and better. I feel happy. I feel healthy. I feel terrific. Again, the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it. So I, I practice a lot of what I preach, you know, about, uh, and people will call me and if they're a little bit depressed and, uh, and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll try to cheer them up. You know, I had a friend a while back, um, he had had a mild heart attack at 52 and now he, he was now feeling very depressed. He said, I'm, I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to do this. Uh, he said, can you cheer me up? I said, well, I'm not a doctor, but here's what I'm going to tell you. The day that I started to live, that I truly started to live, was the day that I totally embraced the fact that one day I was going to die. I said, now everybody says, oh, we know that, we know that. But you don't embrace it. You just put it in the back of your mind. But when you fully realize that one day you're going to die, then you have a choice. You can live every day until you die, or you can die every day until you die. Right. It's your call. You know, and so I decide I'm going to live every day until I die. I'm going to live. This is a great day. Every day you open your eyes, it's a brand new day. It's, the other day was erased off the blackboard. It's a brand new day, you know. I was on a plane one time going from, a, I was working all the time. When I first started making it in the business, I didn't turn any work down. So I got to the point where I was, I remember I was on an airplane one time heading east. And I looked out the window and I saw myself on a plane going west. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think I'm working too hard, but, but I remember picking up um, a magazine. It was about anthropology. I was bored. I had read everything but the air sickness bag. And, and I, I'm looking at this thing about anthropology. I think it was Dr. Carl Sagan. But, you know, it was saying that dinosaurs ruled the planet Earth for 250 million years. And man in this present form from Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal, and now, I don't know, 100,000 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. ruled the planet. And I thought, and it said the planet was here 5 billion years. And according to science, Earth has been here 5 million years, and it's going to be here 5 billion more before the sun destroys the Earth, that the Earth is actually moving closer to the sun. And one day, our planet will look not unlike Mars looks right now. And I set that magazine down. I said, this planet was here 5 billion years before I was born. Not thousands, not millions, 5 billion. Yeah. And it's going to be here 5 billion after I die. That means my lifetime on this planet is a blink of an eye, a speck of sand, boom. 
that you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye bitching and moaning and cursing your lot in life is an absurdity. That you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye angry, frustrated, spitting in your master's face saying, I don't appreciate this great gift of life. Every day is a celebration. What wonderful thing am I going to do today? Whose life might I change? Who might change mine? Mm -hmm. If someone knocked on your door every day of your life and said, Diane, and you opened the door and gave you this unique original gift, how much would you appreciate the gift? How much would you appreciate the giver of the gift? Every day is a new gift. Every day. Every morning when I wake up, I just say yes. (laughs) Yes to whatever amazing experience, opportunity shows up. And it's always more magical and amazing than I imagine. And I have a pretty good imagination. <laughs> great. That's great. You know, it's, it's great. And I think it makes all the difference in the world, especially when things are turbulent on the outside, you know, and people are doing things. We can still have that center and, and a belief that keeps us anchored in something that's healthy and good and happy. It's all how you perceive. Life is all about perception. You know, mm-hmm. I always tell the classes, sometimes when I'm teaching classes, I'll say, a little boy goes in the backyard. I said, all of life is about perception. A little boy goes in the backyard and he's got a bat in the ball. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws a ball up in the air and he swings and he misses. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws a ball up the second time and he swings and he misses. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws a ball up the third time and he swings and he misses. He said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> Nothing changed but his perception. Yeah. That's right. That's right. He just struck him out. Here's the, here's the thing that, that, I, that I like to tell young people. I do colleges once in a while. Do not, under any circumstance, ever let anybody tell you you're a victim. You are not a victim. You never were a victim. Do not let people put that on you that you think of yourself as a victim. I said, you know, I, 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 I once said to these kids in the college, how long do you think you should live with your parents? And one boy raised his hand. He said, till we're 50 or 60. I said, really? And why do you think that? And some of the other boys raised their hands too. I said, why do you think that? He said, because we didn't ask to be here. I said, oh, you didn't ask to be here. He said, that's right. I said, okay, well, I don't want to give you a biology lesson. But when the male and the female make love, from the male comes five million seeds. Did you know that? Two and a half million die instantly. The other millions die along the way. And soon there's only... Uh, 50,000 seeds left, and there's uh, 10,000 seeds left, and there's 100 seeds left. There's five seeds left. Four, three, two, one, you. You. Don't ever tell me you didn't ask to be here. BS, you fought to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm in a room full of winners. Applaud yourselves. You all won. You were born. You were a victor. Five million and one, and here you are. So you were born a victor. You're not a victim. Truth. Definitely true. <laughs> I love it. So let me see. I had another question and it went away when you were telling that story. I, I, no, because I believe the same thing. And I've told that same kind of story that we're, we're winners just because we're here. Because we never would have made it. Of course. So Five million to one. Five million to one. Those odds. Five million to one. So it's time to celebrate and be joyful. Yes. Right? See, so, being a victim. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Being a victim is such a great escape. It's not my fault. I don't have to succeed because, see, both my parents are alcoholic, and I grew up in a shack, and, and, and any psychiatrist should tell you, if I ended up in prison, it wasn't my fault. BS. You know, it was my, the moment I realized that I could change these things, then, then it is it's all the responsibility. The mere fact that you're born and given this life, you're now responsible for, for what you say and do. You know, personal responsibility. 
take charge of your life. Don't let outside forces take charge of your life. You take charge of your life. Yes, I totally, I totally agree. We are singing the same song <laughs> on multiple levels, and it's so refreshing because sometimes I'll say these kinds of ideas and people look at me like, okay, now that's it. She's gone over the edge now. And I'm like, no, I don't think I have. I think I'm on to something here. <laughs> so let's just keep going with it. So if there was going to be a billboard that you were going to put up and the whole world would see it, what would you put on your billboard? My billboard? Yeah. Like if we, you know, if it was one of those billboards that everybody would see no matter who, and it would be in their language and it would be there like, what would Tom's message be? He came to make you laugh. Yes. He came to make you laugh. <laughs> you know, I, I, they, they ask me sometimes, what would you like on your tombstone? I said, he was a good father. That would, you know. I, I love my children um, dearly. You know, I had a father that wasn't, uh, a, 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 you know, he was an alcoholic. He was a good guy, a docile guy, you know, but he wasn't a father. He never put his arms around me. He never took me to play, play ball. He never did things that fathers do. So he didn't do it for any of the other kids either. But I, I, I just wanted my children to be proud of me and, uh, and uh, that, that they would say that he was a good father. He was a good dad, you know. Yeah, a good man. In a lot of ways. Well, I've covered a lot of bases here. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about on the show that maybe I didn't ask about or didn't come up yet that you, your heart wants to say? Well, just, you know, if I say to anybody in the country, I want you to get physically fit, they'd say, I know how to do that. One word, exercise. I say, I want you to get mentally fit. They'll stare me, uh, duh. there's one word for that, exercise. You know, you can exercise the mind where you exercise the body. And there's exercises like, you know, that you, you, you know um, I, I, there's a book called Self-Talk by Shad Helmstetter. And the most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, what to say when you talk to yourself. You know, and, and uh, that, that's what I practice every day. I, I'll have, I have some cards sometimes that, that I take with me and I put them in my car, you know. And, and my mantra might be, you know, um, my mind is constantly in a tune and tune with the positive. Today, I'll be bright, cheerful, enthusiastic, and full of good, positive thoughts and ideas. If I get stopped at a stop sign, I say that. I'll say it five or six times, you know, and I guess those are my mental exercises for the day, positive mental exercises. You can find them in a book like, called Self-Talk by Shad Helmstetter. Uh, so that's what I'd like to say is that, that, you know, while you stay physically fit and you eat properly, you also have to be mentally fit, you know. I take a glass of water sometimes in a classroom and I'll pour dirt in it and I stir it up and I hand it to the students. I say, drink this, drink this. They, they won't drink it. I said, you won't drink dirt. Why would you think dirt? Negative thoughts are dirt. If you won't ingest filth in this part of your body, why would you ingest filth in this part of your body? Negative thoughts are dirt. I said, your, your, your mind is a garden. Say you want to plant flowers and positive thoughts and you plant the flowers, but some weeds grow, negative thoughts. Would you let the weeds grow? No, you dig the weeds out and you replant flowers again. You know, we all get negative thoughts. They, they swirl in the universe. You don't have to let them absorb your mind. You don't have to let them dig into the, in, into the soil of your mind. Right. You, a negative thought enters my mind, and I, I think, oh, wait a minute, cancel, 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 cancel. I blank it out. I replace it with a positive thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always say delete, and then I put in what it, something that's higher. I always, my, one of my favorite mantras is, I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. Very good. Very good. Yeah. And I even made up a little song about it when I used to work with um, mental health clients and things to teach them to move while they're singing it to help 
help anchor it in their system so that it's time to elevate that. And so I kind of sing it along as I'm doing things like when I'm at stoplights or I'm doing things or just working around the house on things to keep my mind headed in the direction that is most productive and uplifting. Man, very good. Again, you, you know, I, I, at the end of a motivation speech sometimes, and I said, I promise you that at the end of this, I was going to tell you the secret. And I'm going to tell you now, the secret is you. You're the secret. You're the secret. You've got, you know, you, you, you can change your life by changing your thoughts. You know, um, you know what, what a great concept, you know. Change, if you change your thoughts, you can change your reality, you know. You can take charge of your thoughts, you know. I mean, unless there's something really uh, uh, chemically imbalanced in your body, I understand that, you know. Uh, but, but for the most part, you know, you can take charge of your life. This is your life. This is your moment on this, your blink of an eye on this planet, you know. Uh, take charge. Say, you know, every day you get out of bed, say, okay, today, I'm going to have a good day today. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help people as much as I can. I'm going to accept help when it comes to me. And I'm going to, for the rest of this day, I'm just going to be a happy person. Just for today, one day at a time. Yep, just for today, I'm going to be happy. Well, everybody, if you've really loved listening to Tom like I have, uh, go to the show notes and click that link to go to Amazon and buy his book. I will be buying it right away. I am really enthusiastic about getting to hear some of his wisdom and understanding and action to execute a vision in a way that's tangible and real. So listen to the show over and over. Take his advice and uh, get his book. I'll bet you'll be glad you did. So thank you, Tom, for coming on the show with me today and talking to me. I have goosebumps being able to, to just have a conversation with somebody who gets some of the things I teach all the time with, um, with great excitement. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to be here with us on Someone Gets Me. Uh, well, I was happy to be here. Thank you, Diane. I wish you the best. Thank you. Remember, everybody, to keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star. You're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there and let your light shine. And remember that every day is a great day. And until the next episode of Someone Gets Me, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.